Welcome to Road to Consensus, the podcast designed to help you get smart before Consensus 2019. Here, we'll feature speakers past and present who are behind the stories and trends moving this industry forward. I'm your host, Nolan Bowerly, and today we're joined by Will Martino, co-founder and CEO of Kadena. So one of the themes that we have at Consensus this year is what's been built after so much uh, excitement and early stage financing. Uh, of course, there's a lot of products that have failed to deliver, but that was really a result of the 2017 bubble. Kadena and, and Will Martino, who's my guest today, was around in previous crypto winters. So Today, we have a company that has sort of been through this before and is still shipping products, still delivering uh, the things they set out to build originally. So I really want to talk a bit about that. What's the secret to uh, building a company that seems quite immune to some of the larger market trends? That is an interesting and potentially difficult question. Um, I think part of it is a focus on building things that are important to real people and focusing on use cases. There was a lot of the capacity to be distracted early on by during the 2017 bubble, I say, by um, focusing more on getting quick returns and raising tons of capital but taking on immense regulatory risk. Uh, Kadena doesn't have that tradition. Uh, part of that comes out of my background at the Securities and Exchange Commission, where I helped to build the forensic data analysis tools that are now used nationwide. And um, after and while I was there, Valerie started the Cryptocurrency Working Group, where I was the effectively the founding tech lead, and helped on some exams. So I have this background in reg, and then after that went to J.P. Morgan. And so because of that, uh, my co-founder and I have a long background in institutional finance and a long background in um, regulation, and that leads us to be really focused on things that matter, really building um, things and not being kind of distracted. I think that's a big chunk of it. Also, I think Kadena is pretty unique in that my co-founder and I did a huge amount of market research right at the right time, and that was when we were at J.P. Morgan. Um, this was the group that went on to uh, put out Juno and then later on put out Quorum. And we did about a year of effectively market research on behalf of J.P. Morgan. We met everyone from Vitalik to Exani to Digital Asset. Um, we're involved with building out use cases. And we're involved with uh, strategic decisions on investments. So you were already then looking at not just the financial side, but also that back-end side, and I guess a bit about the types of economies that would come from that. Yeah, totally. The first focus was actually just trying to get just things to work, really just to do some basic engineering and have a smart contract that could potentially run a use case in a way that we felt we could actually take to a business line and say with a straight face, you can use this technology to either augment, if not revolutionize your line of business. And we just didn't see it at that time. So already there, it wasn't necessarily a throwing pennies type of thing. You weren't saying, okay, look, in an isolated environment, this can work. You were already sort of stepping one uh, step back and saying, this is actually able to fit into the marketplace of this idea that we're working on right now. Yeah. Uh, there is something to be said for private blockchains and enterprise-grade uh, internal blockchains as the next generation of back-end databases. And, but the problem is that people need a kind of specific background to see the potential. And it's the idea that it's really all about smart contracts. And the only reason blockchain is in the conversation when it comes to enterprise is smart contracts, because it's the only place that makes sense really to run them for the most part. 
And there's something to be said for that type of systems, safety and robustness, and how from an engineering perspective, you put all the hard questions up front so you know that you're not going to design yourself into a corner you can't get out of. So just to pause you for a second, what you're saying is that smart contracts happen to be the thing that will work best to secure these types of digital relationships. Um, and it just so happens that a blockchain is the way to run it. But if it wasn't for that smart contract element, it would be pointless. Um, in an enterprise context, I would say absolutely. Great. You guys took that uh, market research, you took that perspective, and you've been building products for a few years now. Uh, I remember you reading your first white paper in 2016. And of course, that's just an addition to the products that you've uh, come out with since. Can you walk us through a bit of those products that you've built and sort of fit them into their place uh, at the enterprise level? Why a person would want one of these tools or one of these products? Sure. So um, we have a blockchain stack that is very holistic. It's designed to service everything from an internal private chain application, a large enterprise, to um, you know, the next generation of CryptoKitties on the public side, to just having a multi-sig wallet that you know won't blow up and lock up all of your funds um, on the public side, and then everything in between. We started out focused on enterprise because that's where our heritage came from at J.P. Morgan's group. Uh, we put out, my co-founder and I, Stuart Popejoy, put out Juno, which was the first high-performance private blockchain that J.P. Morgan ran. This was basically J.P. Morgan coin version zero. We then open-sourced that, presented to Hyperledger, left, and he went and built Pact, which is our smart contract language, and I built Scalable BFT, which is our high-performance, enterprise-ready private blockchain solution. And that consensus mechanism is unique to you guys and is a novel invention of your own. It's a, I would say it's an iteration on a early Stanford research project called Tangaroa, which was an attempt to take Raft and add business need fault tolerance to it. Juno evolved from that, and then Scalable BFT is the next generation. There are some fundamental innovations that allow it to really scale, but the basis of it, I would say, probably points all the way back to Tangaroa. So you built these different tools, um, and one of them, you said, became JP Morgan coin, uh, JPM coin. Uh, can you explain a bit about that lineage, let's say? Sure. So um, you know, back before, so JP Morgan's famous for putting out Quorum, but before Quorum, they had Juno, which was the project my co-founder and I worked on. Quorum actually was initially called Gemini, and they were kind of two deaths in the research group, um, one that was working on Juno and the other one that was working on what became Quorum. Uh, when Stu and I realized that we needed to leave to be able to really push this technology to the next level and to be able to realize this huge potential we saw, when we did that, uh, the focus really shifted to Quorum. And then Quorum was eventually what was put out by JP Morgan. So that kind of took over from Juno, which was kind of V0 of the project. And I believe that that is now the basis for what they're using at JP Morgan. So go back to that decision to spin off on your own. Um, your old colleague, Amber Balde, was in our uh, podcast booth just recently, and I asked her the same question, and I, I would like to ask it to you, too. A uh, bit of context to it. So the RSK conference in Las Vegas, uh, who listeners will remember, is the largest cryptography conference in the world in Las Vegas every year. About 50,000 people come. And in the final cryptographers panel last year, you had Shamir and Rivet and Whit Diffie, the only guy who stood up for, for cryptocurrencies, uh, Moxie Marlin's bike. Um, great conversation. They began, so of course it was early 2018, so they began about the other crypto, so cryptocurrency, uh, saying they'd sort of co-opted the word and they went on, you know, didn't have a ton of great things to say about the, the industry we uh, both work in. But they followed up with a conversation about Facebook. 
and cried their eyes out, really, about how no one at the C-suite took their work seriously, and they were always just some side uh, project attached on. It wasn't the motivating, organizing principle of the business. Um, When you spun off on your own, was it really about creating that organizing principle, that sort of goal of, let's say, securing digital transactions in this new, efficient way that we see possible through blockchain technology? It was about bringing that to the market. You know, JP Morgan is great at uh, many things, but uh, their brand is an incredibly valuable asset. And let's just be frank here, they are not a emerging technology company. Risking their brand to really push an emerging technology like you need to with the this next generation of blockchain that we're bringing to market, it's a risky endeavor. And they're a very large company with an incredibly valuable brand. So we didn't think that we would be able to get the support that we would need inside of JP Morgan. Mm-hmm. We knew what the uh, needed technical solutions were, but it was still very hazy where private blockchain was going to go. One of the things that I think actually drove the market crazy during the bubble was the announcement of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And you can almost track that against what the price of Ethereum was of every announcement coming out of there and another spike. And then eventually it just um, hits escape velocity. And so the market obviously cares about enterprise adoption. But there are these huge facets of things that you need to solve, just very simple things, too, of um, how do you upgrade a contract or how do you get a private chain to scale that if you don't solve even the best POC with the best business use case behind it, won't actually be able to hit market. Um, you see this a bit if you're on the, like, the inner circle of some of these um, conversations where you'll hear about businesses that actually have an interesting blockchain use case for private chain, and they've worked with one of the few enterprise vendors to try to make that happen. POC works. They then, try to, they then um, have the developers from the uh, company that's doing the POC uh, try to scale it up a little bit, and the whole thing falls over. And then it just kind of gets left. So there's a huge market there. There's a huge potential. But you need something that's going to work. And the only way that you're going to get something that's really going to work is if from day one, you're designing for what does it look like if the largest companies in the world are doing their most sophisticated products on your platform. And if you don't design that from day one, then you run into the problem that Ethereum is set, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Richard Gennel Brown, who runs Corda, uh, let's say the bank consortium uh, platform, keeps a very popular blog, and uh, he referenced you recently about your uh, criticisms of the Ethereum virtual machine. Can you share those with our audience? Yeah. Um, in a sentence, the uh, original sin is having the jump command, because once you have jump, you have Turing completeness. Now, running a smart contract is probably one of the most expensive things you can do kind of with a computer with a program, where you run it. It's cheaper to run that program almost literally everywhere else, because when you run a smart contract, it gets decentralized and everyone has to run repropagated yeah and everyone has to run it and validate how it worked so that means that you have to have this thing called gas you have to have a limit for how much that program can do before it terminates because otherwise everyone would just get stuck doing an infinite program this means that fundamentally your contract will always be what's called turing incomplete and it just means that you can't have an infinite loop you can't have recursion it means that certain applications that you might want to do you won't be able to do because you don't have infinite steps Now, most of these aren't transactionally oriented. Most of these are machine learning or they're much more analytical. They're not things that make sense to do on a blockchain anyway. But because of jump and because you have Turing completeness, it makes it nearly impossible to do what's called formal verification. 
Formal verification is this thing that allows you to take a piece of code, a piece of logic, and transform it from that code to effectively a mathematical representation. Because once you do that, you can then write a proof that says, I think that my balance, that the contract that I've just written, the balance column should never go below zero because you don't have a notion of debt. And if you have formal verification, you can actually prove that. Now, Ethereum and the EVM have a number of other issues around safety. The biggest one, I think, is just that smart contracts can't be upgraded natively. It was the first thing that we built with Pact because we knew if we went into a trading desk or really any use case at JP Morgan and said, by the way, if we have a bug in any contract in our system, we're going to have to hard fork the entire protocol uh, just to be able to fix that one bug in one contract. We would have gotten fired on the spot or laughed out of the room or probably both at the same time. Because mm -hmm. these are generally dynamic contracts that are always change as, as the, at, the environment changes or the atmosphere of the deal change, and they have to have some flexibility into them. Um, not quite. I would actually go kind of the other route in what, okay. the way I think of it, okay. which is that humans are fallible. And you need to have a way of dealing with at least what in finance is called a fire drill. Um, you, know, you have a problem, you need to go and fix it. What, is, what are the steps you take to get from here to it being fixed? If they are that you have to get an entire consortium of nodes to upgrade to fix one thing in the contract that only affects you, you got serious problems. But if you have the ability to, say, have native uh, governance over smart contracts, which is what PACT, our smart contract language, has, then this is a much more tractable problem. In PACT, when you make a smart contract, you give it a name, and then the second thing that you have to do, what's required syntactically, you have to tell it how it's governed. And it can be like Ethereum, where if you try to govern it, if you try to upgrade it, then um, the transaction just blows up and you can't do it. But you can also do things like have a de uh, decentralized vote or have a multi-sig system for you, know, you, I, and a couple other people, two or three of us have to sign off. So I had read uh, one of the, the lines you'd use to describe how you would design Pact was human-readable, verifiable by computers, or, or readable by humans, verifiable by computers, I think is what I, what I had read. So you'd mentioned the verifiability part of it. Talk a little more about that human-readable aspect uh, and why it was important to you. Sure. So connecting back to a comment I made earlier about how you need to plan for the long-term success case at the biggest institutions you can think of. Part of that involves the humans that you're going to have to interact with and also the systems that you're going to have to interact with. So PACT, has, PACT was designed with that in mind, which means that long-term, you're going to have more than just developers looking at smart contracts because a smart contract is more than just a body of code. It's the representation of a whole business process, or at least a subunit of it, which means that you're going to have to have lawyers and executives be able to read, if not write, the code. Now, this may sound crazy at first, but we already have a couple analogs today. Uh, SQL, which is the um, language you use for querying databases, is you know, used by developers all the time, but it's also learned by advertisers, marketers, people in sales on a pretty regular basis. Not everyone learns it, but a decent chunk do because it's incredibly expressive and powerful. And if you know what you're looking for, it's the fastest way by far to search your database. The other example is Excel. Excel really is programming. It's just in a very different format. 
And you can see some incredibly complicated and mildly terrifying Excel documents, especially on Wall Street. I mean, you know, I've seen entire trading desks run on just one sheet. It's crazy. I remember going through that in my life where I realized I didn't even know how to use Excel when I saw one of these things before. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing when I saw that. I thought I had it solved, but when I saw really it. really jaw-dropping. And this is the intuition that everyone should have of if you have someone who is technical and who understands a domain deeply, they can learn up to some level very easily um, some language to describe that. And PACT is designed to be that. It's uh, For developers, it takes next to no time to learn because anything designed for a lawyer to learn is going to mm -hmm. take a developer very little time. Mm -hmm. But for lawyers and executives, we've been able to teach them how to read PACT code within a couple days at most. And this is really key because you're going to need to integrate them into whatever use case, whatever solution that you build long term, because the executive is going to want to make sure the business process is represented right, and the lawyer is going to want to make sure that things are compliant. But those aren't the only things that you need to integrate with. The other things that you need to integrate with that exist today are existing back offices, existing databases, which is kind of the other side of the coin with PACT. It has a generic key value data store metaphor, which looks kind of weird at first, but the reason that it's structured the way that it is, and that it has schemas, and that it has kind of a few other parts to it, is that you can put PACT on top of anything from Oracle to Postgres. We haven't done DB2 yet, but we probably will. MySQL, these are all the existing back office uh, database solutions because when you run a blockchain application, it's not going to be your whole back office. It's going to be an application. It's going to need to plug into your back office, and it's going to need to go to compliance and business for review. My co-founder's background before we met was he redid JP Morgan's equity algo platform. And when he was there, apart from upgrading the exchange engine and a bunch of other back office pieces, he also upgraded the front end, the way that a trader interacts with the actual system. It used to be that a trader would get a call from a client. The client would tell them what they want their portfolio to do, given marking conditions, which is, think of it like a little program. Mm -hmm. And then they would try to plug it into this GUI. It would take weeks, if not months. A couple months later, eventually, that thing or something kind of close, maybe enough, would make it into production. My co-founder, Stuart, removed all of that, redid it, and had enough political capital at the time to say, no, we're not going to give the traders a GUI, a user interface to punch a bunch of buttons into. Instead, we're going to give them a language. It's going to be a domain-specific language that is designed to be able to make it easy for them to express what these strategies need to do. So today, this uh, technology that he's built for JP Morgan, I believe, makes them $40 million a year Ooh. and um, is used to actually take trader-written code in this domain-specific language that he's written that these traders learned very quickly and loved because they're technical. They're just not programmers. But they see the way that they can express what they need. It's quickly. logic. Yeah, that's it. It just You need to make it clear enough, lucid enough is the other word we use for PACT, mm -hmm. um, so that it can be you know, easy to use and also easy to... You need to design it around a couple things so that you don't hit normal kind of, um, you know, like my, uh, normal pitfalls, mm -hmm. so to mm -hmm. say. But once you get past those and you design a language to be safe and you design it for your audience, these guys now, these sales traders, will write a program and two days later it's in production. Now these are traders who aren't developers who are writing uh, quant strategy programs that are running in production 48 hours later. They hit QA, I think it's 24 hours after they are initially submitted, 24 hours after that they're in production. 
So the example of that kind of learning curve uh, of how you can take, let's say, a sophisticated professional um, worker or workers and um, move them into um, this totally new system, but actually show them how empowering it is. Is that the daylight you see for your approach on how to, let's say, onboard tons of enterprises? Absolutely, um, especially because of our background in finance and our experience working with um, traders and other just technical domain experts. We have something here that is like Excel, and it's supposed to have that usability. The way that we are going to get market share isn't that we're going to go and take someone else's um, developer base. Although, admittedly, Ethereum developers, if you're listening, the sales pitch with you guys starts with, we have error messages, and then goes on to say that we have upgradable contracts. There's many other things, and it ends at formal verification, but really, if someone's program solidity, they'll know. Not having error messages is a problem, and it's really annoying. But we're planning on dramatically expanding the market. And the way that we do that is we give a tool to people who otherwise wouldn't be in it that no one else is targeting. These are people who are technical, who understand their domain, who see the potential that this decentralized uh, future entails, that smart contracts entail. And we give them the tools to make what was previously impossible or terrifyingly dangerous, possible and incredibly safe. So when you look at this daylight and this approach that you've taken, do you use any historic uh, analogies to help guide you? Do you go back to the early intranets and, and the early networking of the internet in the 1970s and say, okay, well, this was the tool that ended up winning and it won for the reasons that were quite simple in the end, that, that it became uh, like World Wide Web became a really accessible platform for people to build out the entire uh, internet that we knew and, and to a certain extent still is, is the majority of our internet. Do you look at these historical analogies, that, that story, that narrative from the 70s through the 80s and into the early 90s when the internet was adopted as sort of a guiding light for you? And, and do you see similarities and, and analogies there? Um, yes, although we go, I would probably say that we're not quite at the World Wide Web phase yet. Um, I think Web3 is perhaps overstepping it a touch. Um, we really need to get these base protocols to work. Right now, no one has a scalable proof-of-work base layer cryptocurrency. Proof-of-stake is still years away, and until we have that, we won't be able to drive this technology and this market forward. Now, uh, Kadena's chain web seems to be one of the only attempts at actually taking core proof-of-work, core Bitcoin proof-of-work, and scaling it up. We so, go into testnet at the end of March, and like this is one of these key features. But looking back at the historical context, there's a couple other elements that I like to look at as well. So databases is one. In the beginning with uh, traditional databases, before they totally replaced mainframes, there was um, multiple languages that you'd have to write for you know, one that was bespoke to each database. And then eventually they all centralized and unified and standardized around SQL. And the reason they did is that it was a domain-specific language directed at the problem at hand, which is relational algebra. You know, Pact is not a generalized Turing machine that was stuck on top of a blockchain. Pact is a domain-specific language that is dedicated to the problem that you have to deal with on blockchains, which are transactions. So there needs to be a bit of standardization, I feel. I don't think there's going to be one chain to rule them all, but I do think there's going to be one smart contract language to rule them all, just because these things are expensive and very, very difficult to build. And even the way you've designed it, it seems like you've already anticipated multiple chains uh, harmonizing with each other and syncing up in order for this to work, because it still is within your product suite, a mix and a combination of, let's say, private bespoke uh, networks, as well as a public blockchain simultaneously running together. Mm -hmm. And the, and the, the, the public blockchain 
from what I understand, is also uh, running several chains at once. Yes. So the public blockchain uh, called ChainWeb um, is a parallel proof-of-work architecture. So instead of having one blockchain that you're just uh, mining the next block for, you have multiple parallel ones. Each can have their own account, but they're all one network. And you braid them together in such a way that the energy usage stays the same, so it's environmentally friendly. The throughput and the security both dramatically increase while maintaining decentralization. It effectively collapses the trilemma into a singularity. As you give it more throughput, you get more of the other two that usually you have to trade off for. But the future that we see really is more hybrid blockchains. You need this core, kind of a hub almost. You can think of um, Cosmos and using it as an example is a pretty good way to kind of start the conversation where you have a hub and spoke mechanism. With Cosmos, you're supposed to have uh, you know, the internet of blockchains, a big network of blockchains that are all talking directly to each other. When we talk about hybrid, the way to think of it is almost that the hub for us is much bigger and the spokes are much smaller. And they're not really talking to each other. They're almost like teeth on the outside of a wheel. And the reason that you want to do that is because, or that it's you know, incredibly powerful and is kind of required for long-term adoption, is that smart contracts are incredibly expensive to run, as we've already talked about. And because of that, you want to do as little smart contract work on chain as you can. And if you have a private chain, like our private enterprise blockchain, you can link it to a smart contract on the public network. One way to think of this is the public network is the commons, the storefront is the smart contract, and then the back of the factory that's attached to the storefront is the private network. A bunch of work goes on there that is in private, so you can actually control data security much more easily, and you don't have to pay for gas in that environment. But the actual results of it can be brought onto the public network. Now, this is a longer-term use case-driven approach. The core of what we're bringing to market is a the first scalable cryptocurrency on top, and that runs a uh, smart contract language that is done right, that is actually safe enough to use for real use cases. So within that whole uh, structure, you mentioned quite a bit about uh, mining and people being able to involve themselves. Of course, the whole idea of crypto economics and building these decentralized networks and growing them through engineering engineers contributing their time and energy, of course, was first expressed by the Bitcoin block reward. So we saw right away that flywheel spinning that, you know, miners would mine, it would become more secure, therefore it gained value and more people used it, therefore more people mined and, and etc. It began this sort of perpetual motion machine. Now, in order for your solution to, let's say, infiltrate uh, enterprise, it's got to be more than just efficiencies on the back end. You have to start incentivizing people, just like the early miners who came to, to mine Bitcoin. You've got to incentivize people into this network. Is sort of token design and incentivizations really a part of what you guys do? Is it something you think a lot about? It's, I wouldn't say a core part for bringing enterprises on board. Um, most enterprises, uh, the conversation is already difficult enough to describe accurately what a blockchain, a private blockchain can do for them. And then the idea of then talking about token economics and cryptocurrency is we just don't have time for it yet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our partners that we work with now and we have, I think it's uh, seven clients at this point, uh, several Fortune 500s, um, they are focused mostly on private blockchain applications, but a couple are working with us because we have the ability to do this hybrid model because they ultimately want to be able to do settlement on a public network, but there's a lot of back office stuff they want to do on a private network. And the reason they want to do it on a private blockchain is, well, it's a couple of reasons, but the core one for users, for the actual, you know, the citizenry that will be involved with actually using the products that they bring to market 
And these are you know companies that already have existing products, and they're just doing the next generation um, on top of our platform. Is that instead of not being able to access these products uh, 24/7, they will, and that's a pretty big deal because this is uh, specifically targeted towards finance. And unless you're a bank, you have trouble getting access to the markets that do trade 24/7. So a piece of news can mean that your portfolio diverges significantly from where the futures market goes. And then on open, well, you, it, things correct. Mm -hmm. And if you were able to get 24-hour access you wouldn't have that issue. So you recently wrote a blog post titled Smart Contract uh, Sharing Economy, and that was a bit about those incentives and, and sort of the untapped liquidity um, that enterprises did have. Is that something that you bring towards enterprises when you try to underline why they should jump into this two feet first and start to look for new ways to generate revenue? It's a uh, So the blog post is trying to use effectively kind of a bit of a metaphor to describe what happens when you have a completely missing feature of smart contracts today, and that is the ability for smart contracts to uh, import and interact on-chain in a single transaction safely. Ethereum was initially marketed on the basis of having the ability to do a token, and to make your own token without having to make your own blockchain, and to have smart services effectively, have smart contracts interact with each other. One contract has the yesterday's price of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and another contract buys that data from it. They nailed the first one. They completely screwed up the second one. Uh, Parity Multisig and the $200 million that are still locked up um, is the all the evidence that you need. That happened because people, there was one central contract, a bunch of people imported it for their multisig wallets, and uh, instead of putting on their own copy, and then someone poked the main parent contract in the wrong place, and then everything locked up. So when you have the ability for uh, representing a business workflow on a public blockchain or really any blockchain, and you have the ability for those workflows to be imported and interact and synthesized together, you get some kind of weird implications. And one of them is that there are large, actually large and effectively small and mid-sized um, companies that have huge amounts of this trapped liquidity. And these are assets that they have that they need to have in access for their peak times of the year. But during the rest of the year, they don't actually need to use them. So the example you used in the blog post I thought was really easy to follow and understand was this great uh, dress renting shop that also owned its own dry cleaner. And the example you used was that their capacity for dry cleaning isn't always uh, maximum, and they could actually start selling that excess uh, space to other, um, to other outfits. So can you describe that a bit for me? Because I thought it was a really clean and easy way to understand what you're talking about. Sure. So Monica Quaintance, our first hire head of um, research and networks at Kadena, was the person that uh, was pretty much in charge of taking Rent the Runway, which is this e-commerce um, sharing economy, uh, you know, uh, women can go online and rent dresses, kind of like Netflix, but for dresses, and moved their entire back office from you know, bare metal servers into the cloud, including integrating with this giant, giant um, dry cleaning service. And that's, you know, one of the main reasons that we talk about it is that she knows that domain incredibly well and knows exactly what it looks like. During peak holiday season, Rent the Runway needs a huge amount of dry cleaning services. So they have this massive warehouse. I think it's in Secaucus or something. I can't remember where. And the rest of the year, they are running at between 40 and 60% capacity. And the rest is just being left unused. Now, they're not alone. You see this across the board in big enterprises. During their peak demand time, they need to have the ability to absorb that excess demand. So, But that means that they have capacity the rest of the year. 
So the idea is that you could use a smart contract to effectively you know, quantize or tokenize, depending on how you want to think about it, a unit of work inside of that dry cleaning business flow. Right now, it's just a bunch of scripts that run that do shipping and that do tracking and do whatever, and eventually move a dress from place A, ships it to the dry cleaner, gets dry cleaned, gets tracked, gets QA'd, ships it back to the warehouse, which then eventually goes out based on who wants to. So in, in that world, almost all the computing uh, power is used really to track logistics of things. And, and it's not really about formally creating these digital contracts that will help everyone make money out of these sort of still assets. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's that all of the computing in summation represents a unit of work going through this business flow. But you don't actually directly represent that unit of work. You represent almost everything around it, and all it's doing is shuffling it from point to point. Mm -hmm. If you were to upgrade that type of system, and if you were to put it onto a private blockchain, you would be able to represent that unit of effort of dry cleaning as a explicit thing. And then that means that your tracking and your back office become much more reliable. Um, business continuity is just completely commodified. You don't have to worry about systems going down and not being able to recover. But also, you get this ledger that is actually kind of similar to how you think about J JPM coin itself. You have this ledger of units that are tracked inside of a company. And if they wanted to, they could crack that ledger in half put part of it onto a public blockchain, like Kadena's Chainweb, and have a you know an oracle that would link these two. Very basic API. Um, this whole contract isn't difficult to really build itself, but what it allows you to do is then sell excess capacity that you have on the public network itself, on this digital commons. Now, that's you know interesting in and of itself, but the real interesting part comes when you think about that a business flow and the novel business flows are probably the synthesis of multiple smaller chunks. So yes, there's Rent the Runway, but it could also be that you're going to use Wish to you know go and buy something on consignment, and they have a smart contract and the ability to go and do that. And there's also FedEx for dealing with shipping. Someone can come along and synthesize and import these three contracts into a single workflow that says, okay, I clicked on this thing on Wish, I did my payment, now um, it's going to ping the FedEx uh, smart contract, which is going to get the shipping label sent to the person who needs the shipping label, which is then going to send it to the warehouse, which is then going to go through, which is then going to come back because FedEx is involved again, where it's going to ship to my place. And you can synthesize these three different things into one flawless, seamless workflow in a trans trustless and decentralized way. And that one workflow would then be part of a larger marketplace that has price discovery and all kinds of mm -hmm. actions happening around almost any little event like excess capacity in a dry cleaner. Yes. Excellent. So thank you, Will, for all of these uh, interesting points, lots to chew on. And please tell our audience uh, how they can reach you. Well, thanks for having me. First, it was a great conversation. And um, you can reach out to Cadena on Twitter at Cadena underscore IO. And you can learn more about us on our website, which is Cadena.io. And lo lots of good white paper reading to go on there. Thanks a lot, Will. Thank you. That's it for episode three of Road to Consensus. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the content, you can get a lot more of it if you register for Consensus at consensus2019.com. Listeners can also use the code ROAD200 and get $200 off a ticket. Join us for our next episode with guest Tyler Spaulding of Flexa.